Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church in Jersey. But I just thought it would be good every service, or certainly today, just to give a little two-minute um, vision update of who we are and what we're doing and uh, where we're going. Because often we have worship and we preach, <clears throat> and I'm aware, and several of those staff in the office are aware of what's going on, but not everyone in the church is aware of what's going on. So let me just give you a very, very brief update. We are a church with a mission. And we may be different from other churches that you are used to. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here today. You, if you're visiting today, you are an answer to a prayer that I've prayed every day this week, that, that you would come today. And I'm so glad you've come. Thank you, thank you for visiting our church today. Uh, we pray that Jesus meets with you today. But we are not a normal church. We're a church with a vision, with a direction. We have a lead and a, and a clear goal where God is, is taking us. And that involves the values of what kind of a church we like. It's not just hit and miss and we'll see where we're going. We believe in grace. If you look on our website, there's a, a little bit on the front page where it says G-R-A-C-E, our values. And each of the five letters of the word grace describe our values. That's who we are as a church. We're not just aimlessly wandering around. We have an identity. We have something that that God has given us and birthed in us. And God called me and my wife to Jersey to plant this church, and the Lord has a bigger plan. We realize that it's part of something much bigger that God is doing. He said He wanted us to be a lighthouse to the nations. So you might come and be blessed and enjoy the fellowship and be part of this church. That's fantastic, but that's a byproduct of us doing what God has called us to do, which is to reach out to the nations. Church is not for us to be blessed, it's for us to bless those who are not here. That's amazing. Church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That's why we're here. Jesus was sent from heaven to earth. He could have stayed in wonderful, comfortable heaven with God and the Holy Spirit having wonderful fellowship, but he came to earth to a dirty, sin-ridden earth, became a baby, lived a life that was quite hard and died for us so that we could be set free. And then he said, as the Father sent me from heaven to earth, I am sending you. It's not for us to be comfortable in fellowship. It's for us to go out and reach the world. That's why we exist. But the amazing thing is, as we go out, we get blessed. As we go, we are healed. Um, it's, it's just a miraculous thing. When we get inward focused and selfish and we say it's about me, 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 bless me, we're not blessed. But when we try to bless others, we do get blessed. And so that's why this church exists. And we're vibrant, we're moving forward. God has got something definite that he's doing in these days. I believe we're on a time clock. The end of the world is not far away. I don't know exactly how far, but we, we are urgently trying to do what God has called us to do. And we're loving it in the process. So welcome. Uh, we've got a website called leadinglightsnetwork.com. Anyone can register for free. It's very easy to register. And on there are a whole lot of teaching videos and resources. The, the most recent ones we're doing is a set of Bible school talks through the second portion of Acts, the book of Acts. And this week, getting uploaded on Tuesday, we're looking at, in Acts chapter 15, there was a council where the early church tried to decide which of the Old Testament rules and laws do New Testament Christians have to obey. Is that a question that you've ever wondered about? Which of the Old Testament laws 
are still applicable to us today. And we're looking at that in the book of Acts because it was a major issue in Acts chapter 15. The whole worldwide church was very concerned about this issue. And it's explained in the Bible school video that we're uploading this Tuesday. And I really encourage you to look at that. Um, it's, a, it's a valuable resource and you'll be blessed by it. So we're, we're in a series called Hard Questions. Let me just get into the right position for the camera. We're in a series called Hard Questions. And we've been looking at, can I really trust the Bible? Why does God allow suffering? And the question this week is, why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? Have you ever wondered that? Or maybe had somebody ask you that question? Anybody? Okay. Why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? There are, I, I'm part of some forums on the internet where atheists love to argue with Christians. I love to get involved in those debates. Not to argue, but just to make sure that I'm being exposed to people who disagree with me. And one of them, the, the question that I got asked on that forum was, how many people did God kill in the Old Testament and how many people did the devil kill? And obviously they were coming at me with an angle to say, God is a mass murderer and the devil doesn't kill anyone. Um, and quite a few Christians on the, on the forum were like, oh no, how do we answer this question? It's so hard. God killed lots of people. Who did the devil kill? Anyway, the Lord just gave me a little ding of, of an idea. And so I just wrote back and I said, when God made the earth, there was no death. He never wanted anyone to die. Therefore, everyone who's died in the Old Testament and ever in the whole of human history was killed by the devil because the devil was the one who tempted us to sin. God never wanted death. It was never his plan. Amen? But you see, there's quite a strong thing amongst, they call themselves the new atheists, I think. And they love to say God is horrible in the Old Testament. And let's be honest, there are some examples in the Old Testament where God seems angry. Isn't that right? Can you think of a few? Who wants to shout out an example of when God seems very angry? Anyone got any ideas in their head? The flood. Anyone else? Sodom and Gomorrah. Anyone else? The carriers of the ark. Okay, there's quite a few examples. Why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? I've got quite a lot of ideas about this, but I want to make this practical and helpful and understandable. And so I'm going to do my best today. But if we don't get through it all, or if I feel like I haven't addressed it fully today, then we'll go on next week and, and carry on with the same topic. Let me just start off by saying that Jesus is the re- revelation of God. The Bible is like a telescope. If you look through a telescope from the right direction, you look in the eyepiece and you point it towards whatever you're looking at, you get a very lovely big picture of what you're supposed to be looking at. A telescope is supposed to be used where you look through one end and it's pointing from the other end. The Bible is like that. You see, if you took a telescope, let me just imagine this is a telescope. This is where you're supposed to look through and this is where it looks out. But if I look at the telescope from the top and I just, if this is the Bible and I say the whole Bible is just the same, I can look at it from any angle, I can look at it from the top and just pick out bits of it that I want. 
I'm not going to see the wonderful picture of the stars or whatever it is because I'm not using it correctly. If I look at it from the wrong end, everything looks tiny. Have you ever looked through a telescope the wrong direction? Everything looks really, really minute. But if I use it from the right direction, then I see what I'm supposed to see. The Bible is the same. If I take the Bible from the beginning to the end and I just pick out bits, let me say I'll pick out a bit from Deuteronomy and I see in there that uh, the, it, God went up on the mountain and he spoke to Moses and he gave them the Ten Commandments and the people made an idol. They melted all of their gold and silver and they made an idol of a, of a calf and they started to worship it and God was angry and there was fire on the mountain. If I pick that bit and I'm using the Bible like a telescope, but I'm just picking a bit from wherever I want to see how I'm supposed to understand God. I will get a wrong picture of God because I'm just cherry picking from any part. And unfortunately, so many Christians just, what shall I read today? Uh, this bit. What's God like? Uh, I'm not really sure. Seems, uh, seems angry. Not, not sure. If I, if I just, the Bible is not designed to take apart from any place and it all has the same weight. The Bible is designed to be read from the, the end to the beginning. Let me, let me show you a verse from Hebrews chapter 1. It says, God at various times in various ways spoke in the past to our fathers, by, to the fathers by the prophets. But he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now listen to verse 3. I think it's going to be on your screen. Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged us and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And if I read Genesis or Deuteronomy or Exodus or Psalms without understanding the New Testament, I will get the wrong picture of God because it's a progressive revelation. The, the eyepiece that I'm supposed to use to look at the Bible is Jesus. In the past, he says... God spoke by the prophets, but now he's revealed himself by his son, who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the Old Testament, Colossians 2 says that the Old Testament was a shadow, but the reality is found in Christ. The Old Testament was a partial picture, a, a murky image, an unclear picture, but Jesus came and now suddenly it's much clearer. It comes into sharp focus. I see God as a real person. And so in the Old Testament, I see God dealing with adulterers and saying they must be stoned. In the New Testament, a woman caught in adultery comes to Jesus. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I'm not answering the question, but I'm just giving you perspective now. I'm not answering the question, why does God seem angry in the Old Testament? I'm telling you that if you look at the Bible without looking at it in the correct way, you will get the wrong answer. I was listening to, I was watching on, on Christian TV last night. They had a phone-in program on a Christian TV station where members of the public phoned in and they had a minute to, to give their opinion. 
And I just think that is such a dangerous thing to do. Because everybody's got a weird opinion. I mean, really. Some of the opinions. The, these guys phone in, and you know, they're people who no one in real life would listen to, but they get a minute to speak on live TV, and they think everyone can listen to me, and all their crackpot ideas start coming out. And this one guy said, all the churches are wrong because they're not obeying the Bible. The Bible says we mustn't eat pork. And he was strong, and he was aggressive, and he was attacking. And then the minute's up, and we go to the next person. And I just think, why, how is this helpful to give every weird person their chance to say whatever they want to the whole world? It's not helpful. Because there are so many weird ideas from people who don't understand that we're supposed to read the Bible in the correct way. He said, in the past, God spoke by the prophets, but now God has spoken by His Son, who is the express image, the brightness of His glory. No more shadows, a clear picture. You know, if somebody's walking around a corner, if I'm walking down a street and somebody's walking around the corner, I can't see them yet, but I can see their shadow. I get a certain idea of what that person looks like. I can try and guess roughly what they're like. But when they walk around the corner, I see them. How crazy would it be if I now saw them standing there, but now I start talking to the shadow on the ground and trying to shake hands with the shadow on the ground? It would be ridiculous. Amen? In the, in the Bible, there is a clear way. God said, in the past I spoke this way, but now I've revealed myself clearly. Clearly by my Son. And so we know that the character of Jesus is the character of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If I want to know what God is like, I look at Jesus. Please don't be confused by this. Christians, I promise you, there are Christians in this room who you are still living trying to relate to God as the Old Testament God. I know it. I know it for a fact. There are Christians here, probably even today, you read something from the Old Testament and it changed your way of thinking because you weren't looking through the lens of Jesus. You were thinking, that's how God still is. And He's not. Can I just give you a snippet of something that I probably will say next week? You know, in the Die Hard movies, there's this guy, Bruce Willis. And he's a loving father and he's a nice man. And if you meet him in family life or on the streets or in a restaurant, he's a kind, nice man. But you put him in a, in a situation where his daughter has been taken hostage by an evil kidnapper. And he becomes this commando guy who will break down buildings, drive cars over ledges, kill people, punch people, climb up walls. I mean, he's just, wow. He's just this commando assassin. Why? Because it's an emergency situation where he's got to save his family from harm. Now, if you took that Bruce Willis from the Die Hard movies and you said, is that the real guy? The answer is no. He was in an emergency situation. If you look at a mum who's a nice, sweet, kind mum, she loves taking her daughter to ballet in her car every afternoon and she's kind and gentle. She has a car crash and her daughter's pinned underneath the car. That mother becomes a raging animal to get her daughter out of that situation. But is that the real character of her? No, you're judging her whole character by a certain circumstance which was exceptional. Please hear me. The Old Testament 
is an exceptional circumstance. God was taken hostage. And I know some of you are saying, what? God is strong. He can't be taken hostage. He gave away free will and delegation of the, of the planet Earth to humans who gave it to the devil. And throughout the Bible, it talks about an evil ruler ruling planet Earth. 1 John 5 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. John 12, 31, Jesus said, I've come to cast out the ruler of this world. Luke 4, the devil says, all these kingdoms are mine because they've been given to me. It was an exceptional circumstance, the Old Testament. It wasn't normal life. And so like Bruce Willis trying to break into a building to get his family free from a murderer, God had to do some exceptional things in the Old Testament because it wasn't how he wanted it to be. And if you judge God's character by that, you will make a mistake. You will, you will be relating to God in a way that is incorrect. You will not have a correct relationship with God. Do you remember the parable of the talents? The man gave five talents to one, two talents to another, one talent to another. Do you remember that story? Where is it? Let me, let me try and read it to you. Hmm. I haven't written it down. I'll have to find it another time. But basically, the, the man with the five talents did well. The man with the two talents did well. But the man with the one talent, you know what he said to the master? He said, I knew that you were a harsh man, that you reap where you have not sowed, and I was afraid, and I hid your talent. Do you remember that story? What was the problem there? He had a wrong view of the master. The other two understood the master has given me this talent because he wants me, he wants me to succeed. The man with the one talent was afraid because he thought the master was harsh and he was afraid of him. Christian, if you are relating to God in the way that you see him in the Old Testament, you will be afraid of him. And not a good fear. You know, there's a godly fear which basically means reverence and wow, God is great. Like... You know, like when you see your dad doing something awesome, when you're a little kid and you see your dad, you know, pick up something heavy, you go, wow, my dad is awesome. That's the kind of godly fear that the Bible's talking about. It's a good fear. But fear like, ah, oh, he's going to crush me if I do something wrong. That's not helpful. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4 says, because fear has to do with punishment. And many Christians, if I was to take a poll today, if I was to say, put up your hand if you think of God as that, I promise you, many of us here think of God as an angry, punishing God, and actually he says, Jesus is the right representation of me. There was an exceptional circumstance in the Old Testament. All right, I'm going to go through a few examples here. Um, let me just give you the other exceptional circumstance. The one is a ransom. Somebody's taken your kid's ransom and is going to harm them. The other one is when there's a sickness. You know, my, my father-in-law is a doctor. His name's Dr. Kevin Martin, and he's a medical doctor. And I know him as a lovely, gentle man. He's a loving, kind, funny, fun man. But there are certain circumstances in his life when he's not. He told us a story of once how there was a thief that broke into his house, and um, he ran up to him with a bat, with a club, and he bopped him on the head because he thought he was going to hurt his family. And there was another time where a, a thief stole his, his wife, my mother-in-law's bicycle, 
And he grabbed the thief and he had to hold him until the police came. So he sat on his chest with his legs on his arms and holding down his arm. He said, if you move, I'll kill you. Now that's not his character. But that's just the, you know, in, in certain circumstances. But there's another circumstance where he acts in a way that seems harmful. It's when there's a disease in somebody's body and he has to cut it out. You know, sometimes my father-in-law uses a knife to cut people open, to cut a part of their body out, and he takes it away. And you say, that is, that is harsh. That is horrible. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to heal them. The circumstance in the Old Testament that I want to just tell you about now is that there was a disease in planet Earth, okay, called sin. And just like disease has bacteria and viruses that cause it, there are demons. There were demons in the Old Testament. And please hear me now, the cure had not yet come. The cure for sin is Jesus. There is no other cure. We can't be good enough to overcome our sin. We are corrupted and damaged inside. We can't be good without Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit in us, we can't be good. And we can't be healed of demons. You know, nobody in the Old Testament got free of demons. It was impossible before Jesus came for anyone to be set free from demonic power. And yet the devil was ruling in the Old Testament. And so there's this exceptional circumstance where there's a disease, but the cure has not yet been given. And the only solution, which seems harsh and seems angry, is to amputate. Because if we don't, the whole body will be destroyed. A friend of mine, in, was, he's a, a, an African, a Zimbabwean man, but he was in the Philippines jogging recently, last year. And he's a tall man, and he, was, he had his head down while he was jogging, and he didn't look, and he hit his head on a, on a metal beam, and he fell down, and he was unconscious for a few moments, but his leg got caught in between two other metal beams, and he went home and he slept, but unfortunately what had happened is the blood supply had been cut off in his calf and his leg got infected and gangrene. And by the next day, he went to hospital the next day, just 24 hours later, but his leg had already got gangrene and they had to amputate his leg below the knee. He's a fit, strong man and this was a terrible thing, but he's got the most amazing attitude because he says, they saved my life. I'm sad that I lost my leg, but I'm glad that I'm alive. Many times in the Old Testament, and I'm going to just go through them now briefly in the few minutes that I have left. God seemed angry, but if you bear in mind the cure for demons and the cure for sin had not yet been given. Jesus hadn't come yet. The doctor has to amputate. Let me give you an example. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. God is loving them. He's with them. He's in fellowship with them, but they sin. And we, say, we see God say to them, I'm going to stop you from eating from the tree of eternal life because you're not allowed to live forever. Now, some people look at that and they say, angry God, angry God. I look at that and I say, kind God, gracious God. Why is he gracious? Well, first of all, he could have just killed them on the spot but he didn't. And secondly, imagine a life that is now open to demons and open to sin and open to decay and the 
all the ravages that sin brings, imagine that life going on forever. That is not helpful, that is hell. A life being tormented by demons and the effects of sin amongst interpersonal relationships is a terrible thing. It's God's mercy where he says you can't live forever. You can just live long enough to find Jesus, basically. And so what he did was he then, it says he brought an animal skin and he covered them, which means he killed an animal and he showed them that blood sacrifice points towards a time when God would pay himself for their sins. And he covered them with it and he told them one day the devil's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman's heel. One day I'm going to bring the solution, but it's going to take time to bring it in. And until the cure comes, I'm going to cover you with skins. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm not going to allow you to live forever because I'm kind to you. Now you might say, Greg, you're just trying to spin it. I believe it's the truth. What about Noah? It says in Noah's day, God's heart was grieved. He wasn't angry. He was terribly sad because every thought of human beings' minds was only evil all the time. That's what it says in Genesis 6. Every thought of their hearts was only evil all of the time. Can you imagine the hell that that would be? Lawlessness, murder, rape, no life, no love, no joy. It was merciful for God to say, we've got to put a stop to this. Demons are running rampant. We can't have this. We've got to keep, we've got to amputate in order to bring life later when the cure has come. But it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What about Cain? Cain kills Abel. You remember the first murder? What does God do? Does he smash Cain and say, I'll kill you? No, he doesn't. He says, I'm going to send you away. I'm going to put a mark on your forehead and I'm going to make sure that nobody kills you. That's grace. What about Abraham? Abraham is an idol worshiper. He marries his sister. He lies about her being his wife. He, he's just a sinner through and through and through. And God just pours out grace upon grace upon Abraham. Jacob is a deceiver and a liar. Grace is poured out on him. Uh, David is a, an adulterer and a murderer. Grace is poured out on him. The, the lineage of Jesus in, includes Rahab, a prostitute from a non-Israelite country, she wasn't even worshipping God. God had grace and brought her and saved her. She became part of Jesus' lineage. Tamar, who dressed up as a prostitute, seduced her father-in-law so that she could have children. Just a disaster area. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Again and again and again, we just see grace poured out. Bathsheba, she's in the lineage of Jesus. Mercy and mercy and mercy poured out. I want to just read you this last story. It's Exodus chapter 34. The Israelites have been at the Mount Sinai and God's given the Ten Commandments. And while God's giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, the Israelites are making a golden calf and worshipping it. Now, if ever there was a time for God to be angry, it would have been then. But in Exodus chapter 34, God says to Moses. Moses says, Lord, don't leave us. We need your presence. And God says, I will go with you. And Moses says to God, Lord, show me your glory. Now, if God was angry, God had every reason to be angry. He'd given the Ten Commandments. They'd broken them. I mean, God could have just wiped them out. He could have just smashed them. But God says, I'm going I'm to show you my glory, but I can't show you my face. 
I can't show you my full glory because Jesus hasn't come yet and paid the penalty for sin yet. The cure hasn't come. So I'm just going to cover you in the cleft of a rock. And as I pass by, I'm going to say my name to you. Remember, this is in the midst of the Israelites just breaking all of the Ten Commandments. The, the stone tablets that God had written had been smashed when Moses went down and he saw this golden calf, smashed the Ten Commandments, and God says, I'm going to show you my name, I'm going to show you my glory. And in Exodus 34, it says, verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God's telling Moses his name. Remember, not, not just an exceptional act in an exceptional circumstance when there's danger and disaster and emergency. This is God saying, this is my name. Verse 6, he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and their children to the third and the fourth generation. His name is mercy, gracious, forgiving to thousands. And that name is repeated again and again and again and again in the, in the Old Testament. Hosea. God calls a prophet Hosea. He says to him, marry a prostitute. Hosea says, why? He says, I'm wanting to show you that I am like that with the nation of Israel. They keep being unfaithful to me. They keep wondering, but I keep loving them and taking them back. Again and again, the Lord's name is gracious, gracious, gracious. Psalm 103. There are so many times this appears. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He puts the sacrifice system in place where the blood of a lamb will, will set them free from their sins. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us. He will not keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. I said I was not going to read any more. I'll just read one more verse, one more scripture to you. Jeremiah 8, verse 21. God says, For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Listen to this. He says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. God says there's no physician, there's no balm, there's no medicine, there's no ointment. The, the solution, the cure hasn't yet come, and I'm weeping for the hurt of my people. But there are times when there's no, when there's no cure where you have to amputate. The cure hasn't come yet, but I'm being kind, I'm being harsh to be kind. I'm saving the nation from greater pain and hurt. There's no cure for demonic oppression in the Old Testament. What must I do? I have to destroy. I have to cut off because otherwise it will infect the whole thing and the cure will be, will be delayed and maybe even prevented from coming. Friends, what's the message for us today? I've got a strong 
passion in my heart to say, if you are a non-Christian here today, you've never given your heart to Jesus, I want to tell you that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know what God's like, look through the right lens. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Little children would run up and play on Jesus' lap. The disciples tried to shoo them away. Jesus said, no, no, let them come. That's the exact representation of the Father. Jesus was in a dinner party, Luke chapter 7, with a Pharisee, with a whole lot of religious people, and a woman, the Bible says she was a known sinner. She was renowned as being a prostitute. She comes into this fancy religious dinner party. She starts weeping and crying. She takes down her hair, undoes her hair, which was unheard of. And she starts wetting his feet with her tears. She's crying so much and wailing out. And then she starts wiping his feet with her hair. And then she takes this expensive jar of perfume that was her wages from being a prostitute, and she breaks it and pours it all over him. What makes a person feel comfortable to come and do that in a, in a very religious and dignified dinner party? I'll tell you what it is. This man, Jesus, has mercy. He loves people. He forgives people. He says, neither do I condemn you. You go and sin no more. That's the exact representation of God. Jesus was angry at times when the money changers took the, the temple and made it into a, a, a marketplace. He got angry. When the Pharisees tried to represent God in the wrong way, he got angry with the Pharisees. And when the devil and demons bound people up with sickness, Jesus rebuked the demons. He was angry with the devil, but with sinners, he was full of love and compassion. But he said, go and sin no more. That's the, that's the exact character of God. And actually, the Old Testament is not at variance with that. When you understand that there were circumstances in the Old Testament where God was acting like Bruce Willis in Die Hard, in emergency, I've got to save my people from an, an imminent harm, and I've got to protect the rescue plan of the cure that's still to come. If I have to, I'll wipe out some people because I need to protect Bear in mind that all those children who died in the Old Testament, the Bible says children go to heaven. There's many verses I could show you where it says before a child gets to an age of accountability, they go straight to heaven. So it's mercy. And all those people who, who were killed, the Bible says that actually there is a penalty for sin. You know, everybody in the, in the flood of Noah who died, all those people who were so evil, every thought was evil all the time, after Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he went and he preached to them to give them an opportunity to get to heaven. Did you know that? I want to say to us, if you're a non-Christian, understand who Jesus is. But if you're a Christian, Christians, please, 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 please. We are being hamstrung in our effectiveness for God because we are seeing God in the wrong way. We are picking passages out of the Old Testament. We're picking Old Testament rules and laws and, and rituals and we're saying the whole Bible applies. Something in Deuteronomy is exactly the same as something in James. It's not. Look at the Bible through the lens of Jesus and it suddenly becomes clear and the picture is beautiful and crystal sharp and we see the beauty and the revelation of God. Let's stand together and pray. Going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you just to focus on the Lord right now. And you may be here today and you may have a wrong view of God.
You may think of him as an angry man, like the, the, the servant who got given one talent. You might think, God, you're a harsh man. You reap where you haven't sown, and, and I'm afraid of you. I want to say to you, throw that off today. Be set free. See God as he really is. See him as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, showing mercy to thousands, forgiving our iniquities. Understand God today. Just open your heart to him to say, Lord God, I want to see clearly. Please help me. Please help me, Lord. Please reveal yourself to me today. Please set me free from a fear mindset that paralyzes me from doing anything for you. And please help me, Lord, to live in the freedom of this grace that you've now poured out. Help me today, Lord. Set me free. And friends, you have a will, which means you can make a decision today. You say, I decide today to see God as He really is. I choose today to throw off that wrong mindset and to see God as He truly is. And if you do that today, He floods in and He helps you. And He changes His relationship with you. I believe you'll see every day this week, your relationship with God will be different. You'll want to pray and you'll want to read the Bible. When you read the Bible, it'll be full of life instead of something that is condemnation and fear and pain for you. Your whole relationship with God will change when you see Him as He really is. The Bible says we shall be like Him when we see Him as He truly is. Let's worship together. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry financially by making a donation on the giving page of leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.